Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. In in the transept uh, in the doorway of uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, Ireland, there is a peculiar, a peculiar historical artifact on display there. Um, there is a large wooden door, uh, but there is a hole that has been hacked in the middle of this door. It's a door with a hole in the middle of it. Someone came to you with an axe, and it turns out this door has been preserved in this cathedral because it's just a beautiful part of not only Ireland's history, but Christian history as well. You see, in 1492, um, things were getting really hot between the Butler clan and the Fitzgerald clan of Ireland. They were both two very powerful families, and they had a feud that it was sort of like a Cold War, right? They didn't like each other, and, and they didn't really care for one another, but they were both very powerful and rivals for, for political power. And so um, at the time in 1492, they were both very concerned about this one particular position, which was the Lord Deputy. What an English title that is. The Lord Deputy, who would be the on-the-ground representative of the King of England uh, in Ireland. And both families wanted to have somebody in their clan in that position of power. And so the Fitzgeralds were the ones who, who won. They, they, one of their folks was chosen to serve in that position, but the Butler family disputed that claim. They thought it was, uh, to use modern parlance, fake news. <laughs> and um, they ended up being so angry about this, the Butler family, that they came into Dublin with a small army. They were going to fight about this. They were so Upset, And of course, the Fitzgeralds knew it was coming and they were able to muster their own small army. And so in 1492, a battle broke out right outside of Dublin in which the Butlers and the Fitzgeralds came to blood over their claim to power. Well, the Fitzgeralds, uh, no question, they were able to to win quickly. They defeated the Butlers and uh, some of the Butler family was able to escape out of the city, but some couldn't leave the city including the, the, the patriarch, the head of the butler family. He was stuck in the city. And so you did what anybody did in the, in the medieval age. When you were losing a battle and your life was on the line, you ran to a church. Uh, and you could claim sanctuary and nobody would kill you in the church. And that was an ancient rule that had been respected forever. And so the butler, head of his family, brought some kin with him and they fled into the church to claim sanctuary. And when they got into the church, they didn't just stay in the sanctuary they found basically a glorified supply closet, a very large supply closet, jumped in, slammed the door shut, and locked it. They didn't want anybody dragging them out of that cathedral into the street, right? They wanted to be safe. And so in this room, stuck in the room where the Butler family and the Fitzgeralds came, and they're beating on the door, telling them to come out, and the head of the Fitzgerald family's there. He's he's victorious, and they've all got their weapons on one side of the door, and the, the Butlers have their weapons, but they're behind the door, 
And they go on for hours trying to negotiate a way out of this stalemate. And Fitzgerald, a clan leader, wisely says, you know what, butlers? This is bad for us. It's bad for Dublin. It's bad for Ireland. We need to resolve this. And so if you come out, I guarantee you peace. I guarantee you peace. You can leave here. We will not harass you. We will not follow. We will bury the hatchet. And the butler said, yeah, whatever, liars, a lot of you, we, we don't believe you. And this again went on for hours and hours. They're trying to negotiate and the Fitzgeralds are saying, no, we're going to forgive you. We need to have peace. It's good for our people. And the butlers are saying, no, thank you. We don't want that. So finally, the head of the Fitzgerald clan got so frustrated, he took a pike axe. He started hacking at the door and he hacked a hole in the door and he took his right arm and he shoved it through and shouted through, I promise no harm will come to you. Shake my hand, I offer you peace. That's a bold move, isn't it, right? Your your enemies are on the other side of the door. They're trapped, they can't do anything. You have your hand, you have your arm, you have no weapons, you shove your hand through. It's a bold thing, because one of two things is gonna happen. You're gonna get peace, or you're gonna lose your arm. And the butlers were so taken aback by that level of risk, they shook his hand, and they walked out of that cathedral that day and returned home True to their word, the Fitzgeralds brokered peace. So even today in Ireland, if somebody makes a very um, bold move, if someone is doing a high-risk, high-reward activity, um, there's the phrase that we say in Ireland that they are chancing their arm. Uh, They are chancing their arm, and it comes from this story right here, that the head of the Fitzgeralds chanced his arm uh, for a shot at peace. And so I want to help the, have the Fitzgeralds and the Butlers help us today because that's what we're going to talk about in our sermon is peace. Uh, this concept of, of peace, what is peace, how can we have peace. And the, the Bible is going to talk about peace a lot, and it's going to tell us how we can have it too. And that's been part of our, our sermon series over the past, you know, maybe a couple of months here. We've been talking about the, the, the age of COVID-19. We're kind of debriefing all of the things that have weighed heavy on our hearts over the past year and a half. And um, one of the things that I want to talk about, a thing that was in short supply for all of us for this season, was peace. The Bible does talk about peace, and it gives us clues for how to get it. And I want to talk to you about what the Bible says about peace today. The Bible actually doesn't just talk about peace. It talks about two different kinds of peace. Um, There's the sort of outward peace, circumstances that are beyond your control, but not beyond God's control. And then there are, there's an inner peace. Um, there's a peace that comes for your inner spirit, right? And, and the outer peace makes sense. Like you, you may know this, of course, that sometimes things happen outside of our sphere of control and they upset the apple cart and things go wrong. And in the Bible times, it was things like um, famines and invading armies. It was things like um, a drought that made the crops not grow. It was things like locust plagues. And, and, right? uh, and so you had this constant sense in the ancient world that maybe life isn't worth, you can't put down your roots because you never know when these bad, big, bad things are going to happen, right? Like you never knew what the Babylonians were going to invade. You never knew when, the, when the, uh, you'd need to get called up and beat your plowshare back into a sword so that you could go fight the Philistines. These were regular things that the people of the Old Testament and the New Testament would have experienced. These were common disruptors. And the scriptures say that people, um, you know, think about it economically, people wouldn't build grain silos uh, because they weren't sure that the grain they stored in them was going to last long enough. They thought maybe an invading army would come in and just burn it down or steal all their grain. 
And people wouldn't plant vineyards. Vineyards would take a long time to grow. And so you had to, to grow the vines and you had to harvest the grapes. And then they had to age a little bit before you could drink the wine. And the, the scripture says that um, uh, people wouldn't plant vineyards because they were going to go plant the vineyards and make the wine. And then it'd be sitting on the shelf fermenting and, and aging appropriately. But then the Bible says the other invading army would come in and they would take the wine. And so you would never get to drink what you grew. And, and so in the ancient world, God comes in and he makes a covenant, excuse me, God makes a covenant with Israel where he says, listen, I want you to know that if you, this is what we're talking about at our 9 a.m. Bible study. Um, God comes in and makes a covenant and says, Israel, if you obey my laws and keep my commands, if you follow the, the, the selfish system and all just all codes, how to govern, follow my law, you will have part of the if you don't, my rules, you're going to have to use God for the Israel have us that they could trust the divine uh, for those things which were out of their control. And in our own time, of course, I think a pandemic fits that kind of mold, right? The external circumstances where we feel powerless to do anything, the upheaval that comes and changes everything. I mean, it's not a locust swarm and it's not the invading Babylonians, but it has that same kind of very large and broad impact. And so... Um, the Bible talks about peace, and the Bible says in those circumstances, right, we need to trust God uh, for our peace in those situations because we just don't have the power to affect that kind of change. So one way the Bible talks about peace, right, there's, there's another way as well the Bible talks about peace. Um, the Bible also talks about inner peace. Right? Buddhists call Zen quite things close to yoga, talk being sent, you know, they're in dialogue being sent. Um, the two-step thing is the word for us, uh, the 12-step community, they call it serenity. I really like that word. I mean, who couldn't use a little more serenity in their life? And um, in our gospel reading from John 16, it's, 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 a, it's a really interesting conversation. There's this back and forth we read where Jesus is talking with his disciples. And it comes from the portion of John where Jesus is, is teaching them his final teaching before he's arrested and crucified. And so in the, the gospel of John, this, this sermon, if you will, this teaching goes on for about three whole chapters. And Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples and say, hey, I'm going to be executed like, you know, tomorrow. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to prepare you for that reality without sort of giving too much away and freaking you out. And um, he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming down and Jesus going back to the Father. And he's going to be arrested and abide in sort of the truths of the faith. And the disciples are like, Jesus, we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Can you speak a little more plainly? Um, and, and, and they say things like, Jesus, what do you mean you're going away? Like, we're following you. Like, how can we follow you if we don't know where you're going? And, and what is the way? And, and, and you're being really confusing. And so they call Jesus out, and Jesus says, fair enough. Like, that's part of our reading. I've, I've been speaking to you in figures of speech. Let me just explain it to you like this. And Jesus says, I came from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. And they say, okay, we got that. And Jesus says, you're going to be taken care of. It's going to be okay. And they say, okay, we, we can handle that. Save us three chapters of teaching in the Bible, Jesus, just by saying that. They don't say that. I'm just being sarcastic. But, but, but Jesus goes through this shift, and, and Jesus says very specifically, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus acknowledges that we can have moments where our inner peace is thrown off. We're worried, we're anxious, we don't know what to do. We feel powerless. We're not sure what's going to happen. And we're concerned about our own livelihood. We're concerned about relationships. We're concerned about our kids. And this is right that these 12, I guess, 11, we've already trained. These disciples who are following him uh, have given up everything to follow him. They've given up family connections. They've given up um, 
promising careers as, as fishermen. They've given up tax collector careers. They've given up everything. And so Jesus is trying to explain to them. He's like, look, just because I'm leaving doesn't mean your work is done. Bigger things are coming. But even if I told you in real language, you wouldn't necessarily understand it fully. So just give me three days and you'll see what I mean. Jesus is very concerned, right? He says, I tell you these things so that in me you may have peace. I think that's telling of Jesus and his character and his attitude that he's aware enough to understand the gospel with the gospel. If you don't understand the gospel, let me create a negativity and throw off sin. You lose your sin, you don't surrender. Your visions aren't getting right. So this may not have seated right? because Jesus, all of his disciples, it may be one, um, they leave. They, 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 they aren't there. They scatter when Jesus is arrested. But Jesus is doing everything he can to assuage them and give them some sort of serenity to handle the next three days to come. So there's two kinds of peace, right? The Bible talks about this external peace, uh, things that are so big and kind of beyond our control, pandemics, invading Babylonians, locust plagues, uh, neighbors who uh, have their car alarm go off at 3 a.m., right? Gunshots going off in your neighborhood, noisy neighbors who stay up too late and party, right? There's some things that are outside us that can disrupt our peace. And Jesus also, God also lets us know, the Bible lets us know there's an inner peace where in those situations where our life is out of control, um, and things are going crazy, and things aren't, um, we feel powerless to handle them, there's still a sense where we can have an inner serenity. Um, and so uh, the Bible says, it doesn't just leave us there, right? The, he says, the Bible says, um, that there are things you can do which bring you peace. There are certain activities you can engage in that can help recenter you. And I want to speak about uh, a couple of those things right now. Let's talk about that. So when, when things are beyond your control, you nuts, you don't have a sense of centeredness or serenity. Um, the Bible says, there's bigger things outside of control. Let's just watch out to our role. But let's see if we have a sense of serenity in those things. The Bible says a handful of things um, is a, a sense of confession. A sense of confession. Right? Taking a moral inventory and saying, maybe some of this is not just the external forces. Maybe some of this anxiety I'm feeling is a mess of my own making. Maybe there's a decision that I made. Maybe there's a, there's a behavior that I have that's causing this. And I shouldn't look outside myself. I should actually take stock of what's going on, right? That's the great serenity. God, give me serenity to handle the, uh, to, uh, handle the what is it? Uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on it now. I have it blanked. Uh, to, uh, to know the things I can't change, to understand the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Something like that. And so um, the Bible says, you know, when you look at the things which can throw us off of our centeredness and our serenity... There are lots of them, and not all of them, you know, it would help us to understand that some of this is of our own making. And I don't just mean sort of sins in the sense of like, you know, Ten Commandments, uh, you know, playing cards, dancing, you know, like John Lithgow and Dirty Dancing or whatever he was in, and uh, chewing tobacco or like, you know, uh, dancing, right? Sin is something that's a lot more pervasive than that. Sin is the soul sickness, and even the holiest of saints this side of the Jordan have to constantly reevaluate and say, hey, wait a minute, is this really an emotion and an attitude, a belief that God wants me to have in this situation? Um, sin can disrupt, um, and, and so this is the thing, right? Because on, on the one hand, like, yes, sin, we're, we're acting and behaving in ways we weren't meant to, it disrupts our inner peace, but sometimes the outer things are a result of that as well, you know? Um, uh, in Psalm 85, our psalm that we read today, the psalmist is leading the people in a prayer of repentance, and they're coming out of a season as a, as a nation in Israel where they're, they have been engaging in some of these things, right? Um, they have been dabbling in other religions. They haven't followed the law of Moses as they should have. And so, so what's happened is they're experiencing the negative consequences of that. 
And, and so they come to God and they say, God, we are, we are repenting. We need to be restored. Um, and, and what's the word? Let me hear what the Lord God will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. And so over and over again, the Bible says, if you, if you want peace, do some self-examination. Um, see if there are things in your life that, you, uh, that, that, are, that are things that, that are the direct result of your misbehavior or sort of unholy thoughts, but actions, behaviors. Because if you can sort of unpack that and repent of that, you're going to have some peace again. Um, this was the case for me during some early years in college. Um, I dated a girl, and it was a very unhealthy and problematic relationship. I mean, everyone needs at least one of those. You need a bad one while you're in college so you can understand what a good one looks like, right? But um, we had a, a very unhealthy relationship. I was not a well person at the time, neither was she. And the nature of her sort of emotional unwellness that's unimportant to our conversation. But what I did wrong, and I can look back at this you know, with enough hindsight to sort of talk about it, is I made her happiness my ultimate purpose. I cared more about her than I cared more about projects that God had called me to. I cared more about her than my college classes. I cared more about her than I did my ministry opportunities in college and my relationships, right? Um, Her happiness was my happiness. Her serenity was my serenity. Her problems were my problems. Her peace became my peace. So if I wanted to have peace or serenity, what I was telling myself was I have to go give it to her first, And in that year, I am embarrassed to say I had to drop out of one college class before I failed it, Um, and that was biblical Greek. And then I also uh, just straight up flunked biblical Hebrew. I got the chance to take it in seminary, and I passed that class. So, you know, it worked out okay. But literally, the reason why I'm flunking these classes is because I'm on the phone with this girl every single night. I lost connection with a lot of my friendships because I didn't do social things because, again, her happiness became my priority and my grades were failing, and, and so I've got these outside circumstances that are causing me to lose my peace. Um, the academic consequences, the social and relational consequences of devoting myself in this unhealthy relationship. But then also, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, oh, she's not happy, and i got to make her happy. Oh, she's not doing well. And so I had this inner anxiety that was a direct result of me linking that to her. Um, and so that was actually at the time when college when I discovered the Anglican tradition. And what we did every single Sunday, um, this is the first time I'd ever experienced this, was I went to a church where they had weekly regular confession. And, uh, you know, if we had kneelers, I'd invite you to kneel during it. But, you know, we're, we're not, we're, we're, we're dealing with our surroundings as they are, not as we wish them to be. But, you know, uh, back to the Bethlehem home where we normally do church, we have kneelers and we all get down on our knees um, unless we're Greg Davis and we've hurt our leg uh, hiking. I'm teasing you, Greg, from the pulpit. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, we get down on our knees and we pray a prayer of confession. Um, and we confess our sins together. And every week we do it. And what I learned in college as I'm sitting there every week on my knees confessing my sins to God, it, what I came away with was every week I did it, I felt a little more at peace and a little more serene. And so being able to talk to God and confess my sins and get off of my chest these things that were so heavy, the consequences of my own actions, frankly, um, it actually worked. So call me a masochist, but I love the confession because it actually works out. Um, It helps me with peace, and that's the purpose of confession. Maybe you grew up in a very liturgically-minded, sort of sacramentally-oriented church, and they were like, you have to confess, you have to confess, and you're sitting there, and there's a priest on the other side of the veil, and you're thinking i got to come up with some really bad thing that I might have done this week so that they'll believe me that I said that I actually confessed. The reality is, is confession, if it's done properly, should be a source of peace and serenity for you. 
because you're speaking your darkest secrets out loud and nobody is rejecting you, especially the God of heaven. So confession is one place where the scripture says, if you want to have peace, say a word of confession. Second thing that the Bible gives us as a, as a tool for peace and anxiety is prayer. Um, Paul says as much in our readings from Philippians chapter four today. Here is the pertinent part. Um, this is what Paul says. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which passes all understanding. This is a Bible phrase of Bible phrases you might have heard before. And Paul says here, what he's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to link your serenity with prayer. Um, we pray a lot every Sunday, of course. We pray for a lot of very specific things. We pray every Sunday for our national political scene. We pray every Sunday for the persecuted church and missionaries. Um, but there's an invitation in our reading from Philippians to do direct business with God, not just on Sunday, but the other six days of the week as well. Um, because there's something about taking the things that are heaviest on your heart and putting them in the hands of God and asking God to handle them uh, that brings peace and serenity. Um, Paul says, of course, that it's not just you know, peace and serenity that you get, but that this peace of Christ is going to come along and guard our hearts and minds. Uh, and the church of Philippi that Paul's writing to, this is a church that's dealing with a lot of chaos. There's a lot of things upending their peace. Paul says, uh, what we find out is that this church in Philippi, the church that Paul is writing this letter to, um, this town in Philippi is known for finding um, Christians and throwing them in jail and putting them before the court and, and sort of being very angry and nasty to them um, because a lot of people are making a lot of money through um, some very unethical slavery practices uh, in, the, in, in Philippi, and these Christians are opposing that. And so people are seeing Christianity as a threat to their livelihood, and so there's a lot of persecution going on from the outside. But then on the inside, of course, of the church itself, people are coming in and trying to say that the, the gospel is something other than what Paul taught them. It is a really difficult thing. And Paul says, you know what? Prayer is going to guard, this peace that God's going to give you through prayer, it's going to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, prayer is linked to having a robust trust in God when things go crazy. Uh, so uh, when, when things are going nuts, when things are going crazy, confession and prayer, those are two of the Bible's chief commendations to you. The Bible offers them as pathways for peace. But here is the rub. Confession and prayer by themselves. If you just have those two things, they don't offer peace. It doesn't work like that. It's not the confession practice itself. It's not the practice of prayer itself that brings you peace. People will say that. It's like, I don't know, pray to whoever. Just pray, because prayer helps with it. And it's, the Bible didn't say that. The Bible says that um, if you want these things, you have to confess particularly to somebody, and you have to pray specifically to somebody. So the Bible says there's a third thing that you need to make prayer and confession work, which is that you have to believe in a gospel of grace. You have to believe in a gospel of grace. Right? I mean, think about it. If you're not 100% positive that your confessions to God or to another human being are going to be met with forgiveness and understanding, if you don't believe that, then you're not going to confess your sins in a way that brings peace. You're just going to kind of dance, tap dance around it and try to hedge it a little bit, right? Um, prayer and confession, right? Um, you know, you, you pray to God and you're like, well, if God actually knew this about me or if another person actually knew this about me, they'd kick me out of the car at the next red light. 
And so you have to be convinced and you have to understand that the person you're praying to, praying and confessing to isn't going to throw you under the bus and reject you. That's, that's a precondition. And the way you get that, of course, is believing that God actually loves and cares about you. And with prayer, it's something similar, right? If, if, if you're just praying and you don't believe that God actually loves and cares about your prayers, then what are you praying to? You're just throwing thoughts and desires and feelings out into the universe. And the universe is, of course, uncaring and cold and couldn't care to shakes about what you actually want or need in your life. But if you're praying to God, um, then you actually have a, a foundation for which your prayers go heavenward and they're heard and they're understood and they're answered as best for you by a Father in heaven who cares very deeply about you, your life, and what you need. And so for prayer and confession to actually work, you have to believe in a very specific kind of God. Not just sort of the abstract God who wound up the universe like a clock and walked away, but the God who loves and intervenes, the God who died on a cross, the God of Christianity. That's the only way prayer and confession work. And so today, of course, I I joked about it earlier, it's Halloween, but um, over the past maybe decade or two, um, Christians have sort of said, you know what, yeah, it's Halloween, but we need an opportunity to talk about the Protestant Reformation in church. So um, October 31st was, was um, the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses uh, to the church door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany. These 95 Theses, they weren't just sort of abstract theological concepts, but Martin Luther as a man was someone who was desperately searching for peace with God. Um, that he had been a monk for a number of years, he had been sort of a legalist for a number of years, he kept trying to earn favor with God and work hard, and, and it just burnt him out and drove him like nuts. And he's sitting there wondering, what is the secret? Why is it that all of this, I'm doing all of this work to make God happy, and I feel burnt out and tired and ashamed all the time, like I'm never good enough. Martin Luther had zero inner peace, and so Martin Luther went back to the original Greek translation of the Bible, read it through in the Greek, Um, Martin Luther came to discover afresh that all of the legalism and things he'd been told about God, that you had to work hard um, to get his love for you, he he discovered all of that was absolute rubbish. So the 95 Theses were not just sort of abstract theological concepts. They were at their root, Martin Luther's attempt to say, hey, listen, we've deviated from the original intent of the gospel, and we need to get back to a gospel of grace, and we need to understand um, that the God we pray to and the God we confess to actually loves us. And it wasn't bef- long before um, Luther's teaching began to make its way north into England. And the setting of the Church of England at the time, they were reading Luther, and they were, they were very excited, right? Like, our church is Anglican, we count the, the English church as our kind of spiritual ancestry. And so many had hoped to reform the church in England according to Luther's vision, but there was a series of, of political shakeups, and in 15, 19, uh, excuse me, 1553... Um, the Roman Catholic monarch, Queen Mary I, came to the throne. Now, you may not know Queen Mary I, but maybe you've heard of Mary, Queen of Scots. Or maybe you've heard uh, people talk about Bloody Mary. This is Bloody Mary. This is the same Mary. Um, And she earned this nickname, Bloody Mary, because she was a very Catholic monarch, and she did not care for any of Luther's writings or teachings, and she went out of her way to try to expunge all of that from the church in England. And so in 1555, two bishops, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were condemned to burn at the stake for heresy. These were two bishops, right? Bishops high ups in the church. Uh, And the reason they were condemned is because they had come to believe, as Luther did, uh, in the gospel of grace for sinners. They had come to believe in in 
the scripture actually teaching that God was good and loved you and not that you had to sort of be a dancing monkey to get God's favor. They actually believed in the sufficient work of Jesus' death and resurrection alone to save the world apart from anything we did. And they found it to be such a source of strength and, and, and foundational to their spirituality um, that they, um, they were told to recant of it and they wouldn't. They refused. In fact, you can read the history. Um, they had a number of sort of the best Roman Catholic um, teachers and preachers come to England and debate them. And as they're debating them, these two bishops in particular, uh, one of them was sort of a troll and just sort of said mean and nasty things. But the other one was um, wicked brilliant and just sort of debated and, and danced his way around. And people would go to these you know, debates you know, that were supposed to say, hey, look at how good the Roman Catholic faith is. And they walk away thinking, hey, these Protestants have a really good point. Anyway... Um, they were told to recant of their beliefs or die, and they said, we'll die. So the day of their execution, when they were burned at the stake, they both approached the pyre which they were to be burned, and they knelt down, and they kissed the, um, the funeral pyre that they would become martyrs on. And as they were tied to the um, stakes to be burned alive, um, Hugh Latimer turned to his friend, Nicholas Ridley, and said these famous words, uh, cheer up, Master Ridley, be of good comfort. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. And it's like when you're being burned alive for your faith, where do you get that kind of serenity from? Where do you get the kind of faith and peace to say, I'm not in control of who's king or queen. I'm not in control of who's in charge of this execution. I'm not in control of my own life. But I can sit there and make witty comments about my death to come because I'm so confident in God's love and mercy that even this is not going to throw me off my game. Where do you get that? And, and the answer is, of course, this kind of serenity is available to, available to us as a gift from God. Because it is this God who loves us and cares for us in the midst of pandemics and wars and plagues and political shifts and the like. Um, that if the gospel is true, there is an inner peace available to us, um, a peace that passes all understanding, that can transcend beyond the discord and upheaval that we see in our world today. That is available to you. So friends, I invite you today to confess your sins. Um, that when we get to the confession part of our service, take an extra moment and confess a sin or two. And I tell you today in Jesus' name that once you confess them, your sins will be remembered in heaven no more. For Christ took them on the cross and died for you. And also today, when we enter into our time of prayer, say an extra prayer or two. Take the things that are heavy on your heart and put them into the hands of God who loves and cares for you. Um, because this is the Son of God, of course, who took an axe to the door between heaven and earth and shoved through his arm and said to everyone on the planet below, I offer you peace in heaven's name. And of course, this is a God who wouldn't care what we did with that arm, right? Because the same arm that he would offer through the door to be chopped off by our axes is the same arm that was nailed to a cross for our sins. God would gladly have had his arm removed or nailed to the cross if it meant reconciliation and peace with us. So take a deep breath this morning, my friends. I say to you in the name of Jesus Christ that everything shall be okay. In Jesus' name, amen. Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in green, open the keys, fell on that day, first born of
Community Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.